Hey, Andy Phillips here. And I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Dan Shapiro. Okay, so tactics. The first thing is you got to have you, you got to hear. And in fact, when I think about it, the number one thing I'm going to think about how you how you can build that in is how you can hear from your customers. Um, one of the first things we did, uh, and in fact, part of the reason we launched our crowdfunding campaign on our own site instead of Kickstarter is because we wanted a relationship with our customers. CEO at Glowforge. Um, Dan, for anybody who missed part one, can you give us the elevator pitch on on uh, what you've invented there? Okay, 20 years and 30 seconds. Here we go. <laughs> uh, it worked at a bunch of software companies. Started a company called Antella, uh, which turned into Photobucket, which specialized in images online and mobile and such. Started a company called SparkBuy, which I sold to Google after six months. Worked at Google for a while. Wrote a book called Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook. Uh, made the most backed board game in Kickstarter history called Robot Turtles that teaches programming to preschoolers. And then finally founded my company, uh, Glowforge, which I'm running today, which created a 3D laser printer that lets anyone print and design and create amazing things like furniture, like um, uh, shoulder bags, wallets, uh, artwork, uh, and can print on anything from wood to leather to plastic to cardboard to fabric to even chocolate, uh, which you can see in action at glowforge.com. That is impressive. I am really impressed with that succinct moving from point to point that's that's a great elevator pitch <laughs> so um i you know you've you've had such varied experiences and, and obvious successes um i'd be interested to hear who you look up to especially thinking about innovation and leadership whether that's a leader that you had that you feel like had a big impact on you or just in general I, i'm going to give you two names and one represents somebody who i aspire to be and one represents somebody who i'll never be um, and I and I and I and I think of them as role models and and mentors for different reasons. Um, the one who I aspire to be is my friend Glenn Kelman, who's the CEO of Redfin. Um, I go to Glenn on all sorts of questions because while he is in many ways different from me, he's somebody whose values and um, and perspective I admire and respect, and ha who has made that sort of thing work. So. When I was doing my first company and I was uh, trying to figure out how to think about PR, I looked at companies in Seattle that were great at PR and who I thought had an outsized footprint in the news. And one of them was Redfin. So Redfin helps people find houses. And Glenn was all over the news. Even though his company at the time was fairly small. Now they're big and publicly traded. So I didn't know Glenn. And I called up uh, a mutual friend who was one of his investors. And I said, could you introduce me? And we, we arranged for a lunch, and, uh, and I sat there and just picked Glenn's brain. And at first, I was horrified by what I learned about Glenn's strategy to PR because the reason Glenn was so good at getting press is because Glenn 
loves journalism. I think he was like a journalism minor and he worked in the school <laughs> paper and he worked and he reads news voraciously and he thinks like a reporter. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. Like, that's not me. That's just your secret superpower. Like, <laughs> I can't I can't hope to emulate that. Um, but in talking with him more deeply, what I realized is like all things, the way to be good at that is through empathy and through understanding what it is that reporters are trying to accomplish and by giving first, trying to help them do their job and then secondarily thinking about how they can help you. And so understanding that like reporters are looking for stories and the first thing to do is help reporters find stories even if they're not about you. And once the reporters go, oh, you, you think about interesting things and you think about the world in an interesting way and you're helpful, then they're like, oh, and you know, maybe what you're doing is interesting, let's work together. And so that was just the first of many things where I went to Glenn and said, you know, how do you, how do you think about this that's proved instrumental to the way I think about it? Um, and, uh, you know, it always uh, it always is remarkable to me to see somebody who's done so much in challenging circumstances. Redfin was just battling this tremendous uphill current of the realtors and so on and seeing him fight his way through that doggedly. And, you know, Glenn's somebody who writes publicly about some of the strain and stress and some of the fears that he has. So he's very open about it. Um, that's something that that I aspire to that level of competence, of centeredness, thoughtfulness and skill on the other side. The person who I know I'm not, uh, but admire all the more for it, is our lead in investor, Brad Feld of Foundry Group. Now, to give you a sense of my idol worshiping of Brad, in 2004, when I first started to think about maybe starting a company, there were just like three or four VCs blogging. I want to say it was Brad, David Hornick, um, and Fred Wilson, and that was just about it. And, and by the way, I think all three of them are still going strong. Uh, but at the time, nobody was writing about like startups and venture capital and how this stuff worked. So I read Brad religiously and I pitched him every single thing I did. <laughs> I pitched him on Tella. He passed. I pitched him SparkBuy. He handed me over to his partner, Jason, who passed. I didn't pitch him Robot Turtles because that wasn't really a venture deal. And so by the time I got around to Glowforge, I was like, oh, yeah, here I go again. I felt like like Charlie and Peanuts kicking it, you know, only to have Lucy uh, you know, sweep the, the football away when I, I, I tried to kick, but went, went to go pitch this time though, I had that unfair advantage of, I had enough experience in the startup world that we had common friends. I had CEOs who had Brad on their board. Um, our lawyer had been on a bunch of Brad's companies. And so, you know, he, he took me a little more seriously from the start. Um, not that he didn't take me seriously before, but you know, gave maybe a second or third look where he might've only given a first before. And uh, and went through this this process of I, I talked to him for he asked me some questions and I sent him a couple pages of email. I remember long pages answering his questions. We had a 30 minute Skype call, which wound up we only talked for like 25 minutes because of technical difficulties. I talked to a couple of his partners and he said, I'm really excited about this. You mentioned you're going to be in New York. I'm going to be there. Let's meet up on Friday. It was Monday. Let's meet up on Friday and we can you know, talk through sort of final questions. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my big chance. So I started preparing and you know, figuring out how I was going to do this and everything else. And he sent me an email on Tuesday. He says, um, just so you know, we want to invest. So Friday's for whatever questions you want to ask us. <laughs> That's and I think he said, do you need a term sheet or do you just want me to tell you the terms that we have in mind? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? Knocked me over with a feather. For those of you who don't know, Brad is arguably one of the most successful investors generally and specifically in hardware in the world. Uh, he has um, a fantastic track record, tons of major successes, 
widely regarded and respected. And this is a guy who's making a decision after literally talking to me for less than half an hour. And, and I'm thinking like, I could never make a decision like that based on the information available without it basically being flipping a coin. And the more I've gotten to know Brad, the more I have been impressed at his degree of complete and total faith when it's appropriate and, you know, deep and thoughtful skepticism when it's not. And, uh, you know, people, I've gotten the advice more often than I can count, Dan, just trust your gut. Like, trust your gut on hiring this person. Trust your gut on which way to go. My gut sucks. <laughs> There's a couple of things my gut is good at. I'm like product design. I have a pretty good instinct for what people are going to like. But when it comes to things like, you know, who's, are, is somebody going to be effective at a job? Is this person going to succeed at what they, what they try to do? I am just terrible. I have, whenever Brad announces a new investment, I think to myself, number one, I'm pretty sure that I would never do that. Number two, that's why I'm not Brad. <laughs> because <laughs> he is right so often in the number of successes he's had where I would have predicted failure. There is something about there is a level of insight, of faith in humanity, of perspective. I don't know what it is. And he's one of the people I admire and respect most because it's something I would love to learn while at the same time knowing I'll never get there. So I, I have you know two mentors, two idols. One is the person who I, I aspire to be and was the person who I know I'll never be. But I could I, I've got a lot to learn from both of them. Yeah. So I want to follow up on um... – I want to follow up on a comment that you made uh, when you were going through uh, about the CEO of Redfin, and you talked about uh, humility, almost like humility is a competitive advantage. Is that is that fair? Oh, hell yes. Humility is a tremendous competitive advantage. It's something that I've seen in him and I've attempted to echo in, in my own actions. So for those of us who want to set a better example for our team, we're trying to grow a high-performance team, we're trying to, you know, get our teams to, to work together so we can have enterprise excellence instead of just little pockets of good, goodness, right? Um, any advice for those of us who want to intentionally work on our own humility? I mean, this is a growth area for me, so I don't know if I'm qualified to give advice, <laughs> but I can tell you about how I'm personally trying to grow. Um, one of the things that, uh, that, we, that we, uh, we went through at Glowforge as a very sort of deliberate decision was um, when we did our crowdfunding campaign, we uh, had some data that we collected from surveys, but you know we're being a little secretive, so there was only so much we could do. Um, for the most part, the crowdfunding campaign was an exercise in saying, we are going to design a product, we're going to figure out a communication strategy, and then 30 days we'll find out if we're right or not. And there is approximately zero room for A-B testing, surveying, research, et cetera. So it was a what I think of as high conviction, low humility exercise. And then we had to go through a very explicit transition where we said, we now have customers. And by the way, our customers are amazing. Our internal company motto is, we have the best customers because they are cardiac surgeons and retirees. They are artists and photographers and puzzle makers and teachers and kids and uh, parents and engineers and everything you can imagine. And they come up with such amazing stuff that they can do. Everybody brings their own creativity to it. Uh, and so we need to be driven by their passion and their excitement and their opportunities, no longer our own. And switching from a high conviction, low humility world to a low conviction, high humility world took some real work and I and we're far from done doing that work you know we we uh, we we now instead of saying okay here's this here's this idea we're gonna put a bunch of energy behind it we're gonna spend a long time on it and when it's ready we're gonna roll it out we start saying okay how do we 
how do we test this in the smallest, simplest way possible? And what are all the ways we could be wrong? And what are all the things that we haven't thought about? And how can we crawl forward learning from our customers, uh, being humble about it, rather than come in and, and, be, uh, and, and dictate? There's still sometimes you have to dictate. Sometimes you have something that's so crazy, nobody is really going to be able to tell you whether it's going to work or not until you deliver it to the world. We just created this feature called SnapMark, which is hard to explain. And so we kind of just had to do it and let people play with it. But it, uh, the long story short is it lets people line up their design to their material or to previous print to within uh, two thousand, uh, sorry, two uh, hundredths of an inch. Uh, no, 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 I was right the first time, two thousandths of an inch. Basically, imperceptibly precise, as opposed to the sort of rough approximation we had before. And once we delivered it, people were able to create all sorts of amazing things we hadn't thought of. Like, for example, printing out designs on paper and then using snap marks to precisely cut out the design. So they come up with this gorgeous origami folded multicolor creations that we'd never thought about or create or considered possible. Uh, but those are the exceptions, right? And even then we come up with the humility of like, we built this thing, we're not entirely sure what you're going to use it for. So please tell us. Um, and so shifting from world of high conviction, we're going to tell you what the product is, you'll like it or you don't, to, um, to a, a humble world of learning from our customers and iterating with them uh, has been a real cultural shift for us as, as an organization, one we've, one we've had to be really deliberate about. Yeah. So tangibly, um, get, get, let's dive into the details. Well, let's just, let's take a quick sponsor break and then let's dive into some details. All right. Okay. So, um, Dan, I want to dive into some of the details on, on how to do this. Other folks who they want to create a, a higher humility culture and they want to actually, um, communicate with their customers better instead of just claim that's what they're going to do. Um, what, what does that look like? Is it, is it a weekly meeting? Is it, what, what are some tangible how-tos that other people might be able to learn from? Okay. So tactics. The first thing is you got to have, you, you got to hear. And in fact, it, when I think about it, the number one thing I'm going to think about how you, how you can build that in is how you can hear from your customers. Um, one of the first things we did, uh, and in fact, part of the reason we launched our crowdfunding campaign on our own site instead of Kickstarter is because we wanted a relationship with our customers. So we built a forum, lots of companies built forums. We used Discourse, which is uh, forum software that's, you know, you can pay a monthly fee or you can host it yourself for free. Um, and it's a nice solid uh, uh, platform, but, you know, it doesn't look like anything special. Uh, but then we listened and and not just listened, but answered. So I read the forums, and especially in the early days, every single day, answered every question addressed to me and commented on most conversations. And the level of loyalty and uh, and and interaction and commitment that came from people by knowing that they were important enough to me that I was there was astounding. We recently did a survey and we found that 98% of our customers read the forum and about a third of them participate actively. Uh, we have about a, a 150 customers who spend more than an hour interacting with their peers, uh, with, with their fellow Glowforge owners and with us every single day, an hour a day, helping people learn and grow and design and create and sharing their knowledge. That is a resource that companies 100 times our size would kill for. And that's the, that's the core of our ability to be humble 
is that we can defer to the wisdom of our customers. Now, it may not seem to them like we always do that because they'll tell us stuff and, and we'll be sitting there gnashing our teeth and going, oh, it's such a good idea, but we can't do it for the next six months or you know year. In fact, uh, one of our customers suggested something two years ago, uh, uh, a ruler that had very precise positioning. So you could put something on the ruler and it would very precisely be placed that just became possible with snap marks that we released a month or two ago. So it took two years for us to deliver on this thing that he'd asked for, suggested two years ago, but we never forgot about it. And ultimately we were able to do that. So that conversation and having it be a real conversation, not a patronizing, you know, pat on the head. Um, sometimes, you know, people will say, Hey, you should do this. And we're like, thanks for the suggestion. And that, that can sound patronizing for a while, but people can tell the difference between when you're really engaged and when you're not. And after doing that for, you know, the entirety of our company's lifetime, we now have a community that talks to us. So that's, that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is whether you're doing that or not, you've got to ask questions. So we're lucky because we can put questions in our forum and we have really solid data that that reflects uh, a good chunk of our customers accurately. But when we really need data that's unbiased across our customer base, we will send an email and we'll offer something like a $25 Amazon gift card for fi finishing a survey. We get really high completion rates, something like 99% of the people who open that survey email finish the survey. So we know that we're getting really accurate data across everybody who isn't spam filtering us. That's the one, the one problem. But those surveys are things we spend a long time on, we think really hard about, and they give us the ground truth for us to understand what's going on in our customers' minds and with our products. And you cannot have a humble culture. You cannot have a culture of learning if you do not have that back channel of feedback. But there's other places to get it, A-B testing, analytics, things like that, customer interviews. Um, but those are some of the ones that historically we've leaned the highest on uh, yeah. because our actual number of sales are relatively small compared to, you know, the traffic that you see on a website. So, you know, we can't necessarily A-B test the way that uh, Nordstrom could with all of their web traffic to learn things. But we can sure listen to our customers and, uh, and there's enough of them for us to get real meaningful data from that um, to guide, guide our future. You know, we had a, the CEO of Zoom on the show. Oh, yeah. He talked about growing to 140,000 users with zero marketing. And it was just this obsessive approach to the, to the customer. Like, he would email people personally if they canceled. And they'd be like, ha, this isn't the CEO. He's like, yeah, yeah, it is. Can we hop on a Zoom? I want to hear, you know, what, what I could have done better to have kept you as a client. And he does have, like, <laughs> Zoom call, you know, video calls with all these people. And it's just like a customer obsession is how he, grew, he says he grew the business. And uh, in talking to him, like you can really believe it. Um, let, let's do this. Maybe for a final question. Um, I'd love any examples of, you know, obviously a company like yours, it's growing, it's doing all this as you onboard people or as you're, as you train people to, to really make sure that the rest of the company is keeping this culture and that, your new people or people who maybe need a little help this direction, that they really are having the genuine conversation with your customers instead of a patronizing one and, and probably with each other as well. Any, any things that you found effective for you guys with that? So there's one, uh, one key tool that we've used to, to try and guide the company culture. Uh, internally we call them one pagers, which is like, you know, the first big lie because mostly they're like two to 10 pages, <laughs> but, the, but the, the initial, uh, I, I jokingly say the first big lie, but what I actually mean is one pagers are, uh, a short or as short as we can make it document that captures what we aspire to be. 
it's not always what we are. So I'll, I'll give you an example of some one pagers. There's a one pager on decision making. And it says that what we strive to do is when it's time to make a decision, we appoint an owner. That owner's job is to gather all the data from everybody, synthesize it, and then share the decision out to everybody else. Now, we, as much as anyone, like to do things by consensus and often find ourselves trying to make decisions by consensus, which is the opposite of that approach, right? That's like everybody trying to agree together. Um, we forget to evangelize decisions and share decisions that have been made. Like, I can't tell you that we always do that, but it's the way that we aspire to do things. Uh, we have a one pager on, um, uh, we have one pager on how we do recruiting and, uh, or sorry, how we do interviewing and what a great interview looks like. It's separate from the interview training because it talks about what we aspire to do and the philosophy and direction behind it. We have one pagers about things like, um, like, uh, oh, I mentioned earlier our approach to working hours. So working hours and vacation, uh, there's one pager. So this is a series of documents. It's not policy. That policy goes in the employee handbook or a conversation with your manager or whatever else. Um, it is the, the direction and the why and the here's how we think about it. And they're living documents. Um, I probably like, you know, most of them came from me more and more. Now they're coming from other leaders in the company. Uh, we probably don't touch them as and update them as often as we should, but we do. We'll get feedback that something's not working or something needs to be changed and we'll go back and and revisit it. Uh, and so uh, and, you know, there's always new ones in development. Like I've been working on one about what does it mean to be a leader at the company? Um, uh, somebody on my team is working on one that says, what does empowerment mean at our company? And thinking about those help us continually focus on what is our culture and what do we want it to be? Because at the end of the day, like people will say, what's your culture? And I say, I'm the person least in, uh, qualified to answer because I'm 100% tainted by what I want the culture to be. <laughs> the people who know what the culture is are the people who come into work every day. And you know what I do is I point and say, I think, I think that way is our culture. Um, but that's not how it actually works, right? Um, sometimes it evolves in its own way for the best, and sometimes it goes horribly sideways. I, I'll give you one real example from our company's history that I'm terribly embarrassed about. Uh, when we have our all-hands meeting, I put a rule in place and said, we are not going to thank people by name because doing that builds a company culture that rewards people who are noisy, who take credit, who fight fires rather than prevent problems. Um, and, uh, you know, turns the meeting into a recitation of, you know, of names, leaves people who get admitted uh, feeling bad, and managers who are comfortable thanking people wind up giving more airtime to their teams than people who don't. It's just a bad way to re recognize and reward people. Sounded good. In practice, the emergent culture was, we don't thank people at, at Glowforge. We just don't say thank you. <laughs> Which is terrible. Unintended consequences. Huh? Yeah. And it was, I'm mean, like, you know, we've been around as a company for like three years before this kind of got like shoved in my face by a number of people like, Dan, we're a company that doesn't say thank you. And it's the, uh, I won't say it's the easiest thing in the world to fix, but it was like, you know, we could immediately take steps to repair that. We opened up a, a channel in Slack for thank you. We added a section to our all hands where not the leaders and the execs, but anybody can raise their hand and say thank you to anybody else, which was immediately hailed as the best part of the all hands meeting. And so anybody put their hand up, take 30 seconds, thank somebody for something. Uh, folks tend to applaud because it's usually awesome and then go on to the next one. And like 
yeah, you asked me what the culture would have been. Uh, yes, the culture was, you know, a year ago, and it would have been like, we're a culture that thanks people, you know, individually and is grateful and has gratitude, but doesn't, you know, doesn't showboat people. No, I was just totally wrong. We, we had this dysfunctional piece of our culture around not saying thank you. And I was the last person to figure it out. I love that story. Well, um, where, uh, where are the best places for people to connect with you? Social, coming to the website? Yeah, uh, I love to chat on Twitter. So I'm Dan Shapiro on Twitter. And then uh, I am so proud of what we built at Glowforge. Uh, so I'd encourage everybody to go look at Glowforge and imagine what your world would be like if you had one of those on your desktop and how that would transform your family transform your business, transform the way your kids think about, about buying versus building, uh, because it has owning a Glowforge has changed my life and I want to change everybody else's life in the same wonderful way. But Dan, how are we going to get you to get passionate about your product? We just, maybe we could have some <laughs> offline coaching. I could help you. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty ambivalent about it. Uh, <laughs> there was an old ad that said, I'm not just the president of the hair club for men. I'm also a client and uh, <laughs> this guy with a rich, luxurious head of hair. And that's me, but for lasers. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, thanks again for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember... A year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. They call you the grill master. You've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop. And as you lift that first forkful to your mouth, you savor the moment. To get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, like the 2019 C-Class Sedan and GLC SUV. The perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, now serving limited-time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing.